Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric V. Well, welcome everybody to The Jury Is Out, and this is our third session on client deposition. We talked about some general guidelines or rules for preparing your client for deposition. And now in this session, what we're going to do is we're going to move from preparing your client for their deposition to actually defending them in the deposition. Yeah, so now we're in the deposition and we're going to offer a a number of tips about things that can happen and how you might react to them. So Eric, let me ask you this. Should your client's depo be videotaped? If the other side's not going to videotape it, should you ask that it be videotaped? Maybe there's a need to preserve it. If your client is ill and you're worried about whether they'll be able to testify at trial well and yet they're, they're okay now, that might be one reason to preserve the images. I personally like the idea that my clients can think about an answer longer before answering it. And so the videotape will show that thinking and waiting, and I don't like that. I'd rather have the transcript show that it's just a question and an answer. So there's an advantage to not having a video in that case. I think most of the time my clients' depositions are videotaped, and I don't, if it's not noticed up as a video deposition, I don't cross-notice it and have it be a video But there are a couple exceptions to that. And one is to preserve it. And that's exactly, you already mentioned that. If your client is in in a situation, if they're dying of cancer, or you really need to preserve the testimony, obviously that's one reason to do it. Another reason is when the injuries are so significant in the case, for instance, a brain injury, a paralysis injury, they're having trouble speaking, burn injuries, injuries that you really can't pick up just with a paper deposition. Most of the time in those cases, I will do that. I've had situations where my client was horribly brain damaged, has absolutely no memory of the incident at all, has nothing to add or, or, you know, really incapable of adding anything, and yet the defendant wants to take the deposition, okay? And we've already stipulated that our client won't be testifying at trial, has no recollection or memory of anything, and pretty much almost doesn't have the ability to testify, yet they want to go forward and take the deposition. And in those circumstances, and it's happened a handful of times, I will cross-notice a video, and we can play it at trial without calling our client, and almost without exception, every time it's a very impactful you know, part of our trial, impactful piece of evidence in the case. One other instance where you might consider it, if you have one of those attorneys who is kind of a pain in the neck and disrespectful and unprofessional, that might be something you think about doing to, number one, either document what they're doing, or if they're being videotaped, they may think twice about being rude or disrespectful. Yeah, I've done that. I've had an attorney on the other side that was extremely rude. And I thought, just like you said, it'll have one of two impacts. One will be they'll straighten up because they know they're on videotape. But in this case, what we did is we brought the video into the court. We said, here's the kind of stuff that they're doing, because apparently the, the videotape did not change his behavior at all, which surprised me. Another thing to think about, too, a lot of times we have somebody who's been injured and the spouse, the husband or wife also has a consortium claim. And the question is, should they be together in each other's deposition? They're both parties. They're both plaintiffs. They have a right to attend each other's deposition. And one of the questions is, do you want to do that? And I think that depends on the case, but mostly who the clients are. And for instance, if you have a client, say a husband, who was severely injured, has a brain injury, or is paralyzed. And it's really almost without exception, it puts an incredible, incredible burden on the family 
and the spouse. And I think it's better under those circumstances to have the the husband and wife not attend each other's depositions because it really lets the uninjured spouse, I shouldn't say uninjured, the spouse that wasn't physically injured, be more free and open. I mean, it probably would impede her ability a little bit. She doesn't want to talk about how her life is upside down now and all of these things she has to do to take care of her husband and all the difficulties and problems that it has caused. She's not going to be as open and honest about that, I think, with her husband in the room during the deposition. So I think it's important to not have them together in most cases. And the same way at trial, I've even done that at trial where they're both, husband and wife are both at the, at the trial sitting together. And when one or the other testifies, the other one leaves the room. And I let the jury know about that in voir dire or before the witness takes the stand. I'm thinking of a case like that. It was involved a quadriplegic man who was hurt in an accident. And he came in and he's trying to stay upbeat. And he's talking about how he hopes the doctors will figure out a way to make him walk again and how he gets through the day and things are pretty good. And so the attorneys had all agreed ahead of time that his wife would not be in the room while he, de- he was deposed. He would not be in the room while she was deposed. So she came in and the story was absolutely upside down, talking about how difficult it is to get simple things done, how depressed he is. And we try to be good human beings always, lawyers second, but why would you want him to sit in a room while his wife is saying how thoroughly demoralizing a situation is and hopeless because that was her testimony and nobody wanted him to sit there and hear that. I think first you ought to be thinking about the client, the person, and sometimes you do things that might not be the best thing for the case, but you just don't want to put your client through what they went through You know, again. I mean, they've already gone through enough, which brings me to the next topic. And what do you do, Eric, when the other lawyer is being a jerk and being just completely obnoxious to your client, disrespectful, unprofessional, getting into areas, for instance, maybe in their background that have little or nothing to do with the case, but the primary reason is to embarrass them and throw them off balance a little bit. What do you do under those circumstances? I think there's several levels of response to that. One would be making objections that these are irrelevant, entirely have nothing to do with the case. But sometimes I think it's better to save face for this person and to take a pause and go out in the hall and talk just lawyer to lawyer, without anyone else there, and say, I know that you're the lawyer, and you're trying your hardest to represent your client. I want to give them a chance to say, I'm not accusing you of things, that you're intentionally doing this. But from my perspective, it looks like this, and I don't think it's right, and I think it's harming the process. And I think it always is good to have a personal relationship with the lawyer. And that's a good way, because you're not shouting at them in front of all the court reporter and the, the witness. It might be, though, that it keeps going on, and then you have to start making a record about why you're objecting and say, my client won't respond to this or that. And I know, as you've done, sometimes you have to call the deposition. You can say, this is not working. We need further guidance to the court before we would ever go forward with this. Eric, I agree with you. It needs to be a step, multi-step process. And first, you need to have that conversation. And I think your suggestion of doing that out of the room, it kind of calms things down a little bit. And I always like when I'm asking if something's going on in the deposition that I'm not happy with to just say, look, as a professional courtesy, I would greatly appreciate it if you could tone it down a little bit. My client has been through enough. And most often for me, probably 90% of the time, that takes care of it. But I think there are certain circumstances, and fortunately it doesn't happen that often, where that doesn't solve the problem. And as we talked earlier, to me it's a zero tolerance thing. I'm not, I'm not going to sit in a deposition and let somebody berate my client or try to embarrass them or humiliate them and, and be obnoxious and rude. 
the depot's over, and I just won't allow that to happen. Actually, the better the attorney is, the better these things go. The smarter the, your opponent is, the better the whole case goes because people understand the case and they aren't taking wild swings at things. But depositions are often, they're chess games, they're important. Sometimes you're nervous about what's going to happen, what your client's going to blurt out. I try to do this at the beginning of every deposition. I'll wait till everybody's set and ready to go, and then I'll escort my client into the room, and I'll go around the room and introduce my client to everybody in the room. I will introduce them to each of the lawyers, let them know who they represent. I will introduce them to the court reporter, the videographer, if they're there. I'll explain what they're going to do in the process. And I think that introduction really does melt the ice a little bit and gets the process off to a much better start. You've often said, and I agree, it's all about relationships. It's the key to almost everything we do in every walk of our life. It's understanding people and having a relationship with them. So that's great, breaking the ice. Sometimes at the beginning of a case, when the suit has just been filed, nothing else has been done, I'll call the other attorney. I'll say, hey, why don't we meet at one of our offices, not on the phone, and just talk about the case, where we think we're going to be going with this. And it's a chance to ask other things, too, like how long you lived in St. Louis. Since we're in St. Louis, where'd you go to high school? Just get to know each other a little bit, because having a relationship makes everything go better later. And what what do you think about breaks, taking breaks in the deposition? How do you do that, Eric? Do you schedule breaks at certain times? Do you ask for a break? I don't think human beings understand when they're getting tired and fatigued and fuzzy. I don't think we understand it. We think we're okay and we're able to fight through even if we're a little bit tired or fatigued. I think it's a great idea to take a break every hour. And I've had some stories where really to take a break. I had a client with a blood sugar problem. It would go down and she would say things that make no sense at all. It wasn't lying. It wasn't exaggerating. It was absurd. And I had uh, chances now to take a walk with her. We'd walk around a block. She'd have a little food. She'd come back, and she'd be normal again. But I think the same rule can apply somewhat to us, too, as attorneys. I think it's really good for us for being sharp. We're human animals. We, we need to be fed, watered, walked. This is a somewhat unnatural, artificial environment where we're sitting in a chair in a room for long periods of time. So I think breaks every hour are a good idea, even if you think you don't need them. Yeah, and I think it's important how you ask for the break also. Obviously, you don't want to ask for a break between a question and an answer. And what I like to do is if if I think we need a break, if I need a break or I think my client needs a break, I will ask the other attorney, we'd like to take a break in the next five or ten minutes. And if you get to what you believe is an appropriate, you know, good stopping point, we'd like to take a break. And I think that's the, that's the right way to do it. Maybe the question hasn't even been asked, but it just seems like the next topic we're about to go into. And I'm looking at my client, seeing that the client looks a little nervous about things. And I'll take that opportunity to more emphatically say, this is probably a good time for a break. Would that be okay? And just get out in the hall and make sure the client is okay. Are you okay? And that's another important part of taking a break. Are you okay? Are you feeling good? And the reason is, and we talk about this in prep quite often, As I tell the client, you're going to be going for long stretches and you're going to be wondering, the voice in your head is going to be saying, am I screwing this up? Am I doing okay? And I tell them, I can't tell you anything. I can't give you the thumbs up. I can't applaud when you give a great answer. All of this would be highly inappropriate. So you're going to hear silence from me. And I need you to assume that if you hear nothing from me, it's okay. We're going okay. Yeah, that means you're doing a good job. Right. So another thing too that comes up in Missouri, 
I don't believe we don't have limits for depositions, right? Right, not in the state and, courts. Right, in the federal court we do. And I know other states have some limitations. But, you know, our depositions are unlimited in Missouri. And sometimes that's borderline abused or actually flat out abused. And it's hard. I mean, I guess each circumstance is a little different. But what I've seen is we have an all-day deposition starting at 9 o'clock. And by 5 o'clock, they've pretty much covered everything they could conceivably cover six times. And you're wondering, what, what in the heck else could they possibly ask? And then they look at you and say, well, you know, I've got several more hours. We'd like to continue the deposition. And under those circumstances, every time, my, my answer is the same, and that is no. We're here to get it done. Let's push on through and get it done. And if you take that position... Nine times out of ten, it ain't several more hours. It's another 30 minutes and everybody goes home. The human stomach is your ally in those cases because people get hungry and then they think about it, like, do I really want to be stirring the pot? I think what they want to do is they want to go back to the office, think about it, get more brainstorming going, come back with new questions. But I think you can make a good case that you can have all the time you need today to finish your questions. Do you ask your client any questions in the deposition? Do you do a cross or or whatever you want to call it? So after your client is questioned for four hours or five hours in a deposition, do you ever do any follow-up questions? Rarely. I do it when the client said something that I know what they meant. It came out wrong. The words they said could convey something other than what I know they meant. Yeah, and, I'm, and I, I'm, I don't want to leave that hanging in the deposition transcript. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way. Rarely do I question my own client at their deposition. The only time I would do it is to clarify something that was that could be misinterpreted or misunderstood, or if there's a certain element of the case that wasn't clear, just to clarify what it is. If they said something that, that I know was incorrect or wrong and unintentionally they got the wrong date or time or place or whatever, I may consider following up to have them clarify it. But other than that, my practice is really not to ask questions at the deposition. There's another case that comes up once in a while, not often, where the opposing attorney doesn't do a good job of letting the client talk about how this accident, if it's a tort case, has affected their life. And yet I know from deposition prop and talking to my own client, they have a lot they want to tell their story where it's a serious injury and it really impacted their life in major ways. So once in a while... I'll say, could you tell us a bit about how this accident has affected your life? And what I want to do there is I want the other attorney to hear it and put it in the report and so they can uh, yeah, think, of, sure. think about it. Sometimes in a deposition, your client says something that's just flat out wrong. And it's, I'll give you a good example. The client may give the wrong date or the wrong year. Maybe they went to see a doctor at a certain time. And from looking at the medical records, that it just wasn't correct. And through no fault of the client, they just didn't remember it. And they gave the answer without qualification. I mean, sometimes your client just gets something wrong, and they just get it flat out wrong. And depending on what it is, if it's really significant or important to the case, you may need to fix it or correct it. Now, really, you can't do it during the deposition. Sometimes you can. If it's just a date or something, you can say, you know, excuse me, or you're sure about that or whatever. But most of the time, what you do is you, at a break, you'll go in and talk to your client about it and say, hey, you know, you gave this date, the medical records really say this. You might want to go back and clarify that. And then they can go back in and clarify it during the deposition. Taking the deposition really does expose the fact that maybe you missed a topic or missed telling your client something. If you don't prepare for this ahead of time, you'll be sitting there on pins and needles. You'll already be sitting there on pins and needles, no matter how well you prepared your client. 
But if you rush a deposition and you forget to prepare them for a topic, there's nothing like that to make you feel really awkward and vulnerable. And if you remember that you need to talk about a topic and it hasn't been brought up yet, of course, do that at a break. But sometimes it just happens and you go, oh, I wish I had talked about that topic, which, again, the, the only way to remedy that is to have taken the time and the preparation process simply directly affects the way the deposition happens and the deposition directly affects the way the trial will go. Again, I know I don't want to pound this into the ground, but there's no substitute I know other than taking a lot of time to prepare well so that you don't have these moments in the deposition. And when you do it right, it feels really good. When you've talked about an issue with your client and it comes up in the deposition and the client explains himself or herself really well, that's a great feeling. And I think sometimes too, it's not The client knows the answer, but they have a hard time articulating it. I think that's most times what what happens. And they just, they're nervous. They're struggling to try to find the words. And it's, you know, sometimes you need to, when you you take a break, you need to talk to them and say, you know, you're doing a good job and do your best. And, you know, not tell them what to say, but give them a little encouragement to help them get through the process and calm them down a little bit. In preparation, it's an easy tactic. It's obvious once you do it a few times, but you might be asking a question to your client. They might ask you about X, Y, or Z, and they give you an answer, and you wince at it because you think that doesn't make sense or that's not accurate based upon what you told me before. And sometimes what I like to do is just repeat their answer. What you told me is this. What do you think about that? And sometimes they go, oh, that doesn't sound quite right. So that's a good time to get them to think about how to articulate the answer because I agree with you 100%. Just because they are trying to tell the truth doesn't mean it always comes out right. And sometimes they have to think about how to say it carefully so that what they believe is the thing that comes out onto the transcript. Sometimes clients say things that that surprise you in a a deposition. Something that you're hearing for the first time, and that can surprise you, shock you. It's, to me, I try not to show any reaction to it at all during the deposition. And obviously, when we take a break, you know, I want to learn more about it and get more information and make sure that I'm understanding it completely so that the client is covering it correctly in the remaining part of the deposition. And I think you have to let the client know from the beginning and the prep through the deposition, it breaks. It's all about telling the truth. There's no right answer and wrong answer. There's only the truthful answer. And I think where clients get tripped up most of the time is they feel obligated to answer every question when they just don't know the answer to it. And that's really what I see most of the time. We are trained up from years of schooling that when the teacher calls on you and asks you a question, you do your best. You just give it a shot. And that's definitely not the rule in a deposition. The rule is that you should answer it if you know it. If you don't know it, you should say you don't know it. If you're not confident in your answer, you would say, I'm really not sure. And that's, a, that's an important thing for my client to let me know. They're about to say something I would be guessing. if I, I would say, then don't guess. I would be estimating. They can let the questioner know their degree of confidence of whether they know something or not. That's really helpful for me because I might need to intervene with an objection if, be, if they were just guessing. But it's hard to say, I don't know. That's a hard thing for a lot of people to say. Well, this concludes our final session on your client's deposition. Thanks for joining us on The Jury Is Out. We hope you enjoy all of these episodes. We'll be back with more information next time. I'm Eric Veith. And John Simon. See you then. John and Eric would like to hear from you. 
they invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.